Hall of Justice. Welcome once again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. The year, 1973. Nixon completely pulls out of Vietnam as Watergate scandal goes full scheme ahead. Full scheme, get it? <laughs> that sets a nice context for the goings-on because in the comics industry, we have a theme of death and rebirth of a new consciousness. Well, wait. I have to break character here. I'm, I'm sorry, Alex. I, I, I really want to do it all as Ted Knight, but I have to tell you, 1973 was, well, it was the year I got into comics, and it's really personal for me. And with that, I'm going to say, I'm your host, Bill Field, and here I am with the wonderful Alex Grand. Well, how you doing, Bill? Where's our good friend Jim? Jim Thompson is off this week because he's actually putting together our next episode, which is going to be fantastic. So, Alex, tell me, what is your highlight of 1970? Well, you weren't even born yet, but uh, <laughs> I had no highlights. I, I wasn't even a twinkle, Bill. So, Alex, let's start with the wonderful, upbeat topic of, well, death. That's it. Let's knock out the list. Take it away, Billy Boy. 1973 saw the death of Bill Everett, the creator, of course, of Submariner and such titles as Doctor Strange and many more. He died at 55, and that kind of signaled the end of an era, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. So Bill Everett was a writer and creator of Namer the Submariner. He actually worked for Lloyd Jacquet for Funnies, Inc., and they were contracted by Martin Goodman to make Marvel Comics 1 with Carl Burgos with the Human Torch, etc. And at the same time, Bill Everett was working over at Centaur, where he made Amazing Man and worked on some other comics. He was just a truly interesting character because I think Namer reflects the id of Bill Everett, the kind of cavalier anti-hero. And he worked on Namer in 1939, then in the 40s, then even in the 50s under the Atlas era in the 60s he worked in submariner and other titles so he is kind of a quintessential symbol of comics from the golden age through the silver age and for him to die in 1973 i think it does signal the end of an era because the bronze age is two years three years into the running and really there's no looking back we're saying goodbye to a legend this year his last work was in submariner 61 his latest work was showcased in supervillain team up posthumously bill do you remember your favorite bill everett story you know what? I'm really crazy about his Doctor Strange period. He took over right after Ditko left Marvel. As a cartoonist myself, I have to say his cross-hatching technique and the way that he worked with designs within a, a given picture was phenomenal. And he had some skills that a lot of the greats just didn't. And he was prolific as hell. It's ironic that he basically finished out the Submariner series for Marvel, the first series, and then died. It was a sad day. I still remember that splash page uh, that showed the Submariner over his grave with Bill Everett's name, and it was actually a really sad moment. He had some health problems toward the end, had a hard time meeting deadlines. It was just kind of a sad kind of end to uh, someone that created a lot of great stories. My favorite of his was his Golden Age Submariner because he was just so violently bad that he was so good. He stood up against the Nazis, which is obviously something that's great, but then he also just kind of killed 
innocent people, sometimes by accident, sometimes on purpose. So he's just one of those funny anti-hero types. This is decades before Wolverine and decades before The Punisher, but he was just an interesting character. So yeah, 1973 is the end of, of an era with Bill Everett dying at a really young age of 55. So the next death in the theme is the death of Gwen Stacy by Jerry Conway and Gil Kane in Amazing Spider-Man 121. So, Bill, did you read that comic when it came out? I read it probably about a year after it came out because I didn't I I was into DC first and then um I got uh gobsmacked by Marvel and never really looked back because mm-hmm. uh I'm I've been a Marvel guy Pretty much ever since. I mean, I'm I'm still a DC guy too. Don't get me wrong, but uh, the early the early years of me and Marvel were uh, pretty awesome because I got into Spider Man, and then I discovered his girlfriend had just died, and right. it it kind of it kind of shook me up because it's like, what comic book characters don't die, you yeah, know? But exactly. Yet, but yet, you know, her dad had died what two years before that. And so the Stacy clan did not have a very uh, healthy relationship with Spider-Man, shall we say. That's right. Peter Parker was kind of a curse on that family in a way. The death of Gwen Stacy, the initial thought is some say it was John Romita's idea. He was a Milton Kniff fan, and Milton Kniff in Tearing the Pirates had a female love interest die in one of those early issues and that really resonated with fans and also there's something about heroes and characters staying bachelors or bachelorettes or if they fall in love ruin the relationship just to keep things moving along and i thought that when i first saw that story it it did kind of shake me a bit because it was spider-man's webbing grabbing her leg and then her neck snapping back and the lettering it says snap there and I remember we asked Tom Orzachowski in our interview with him, and he interpreted that lettering as Peter's webbing being responsible for her neck breaking. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I believe that that, that wasn't really fleshed out until uh, Marvels with uh, Alex Ross, and when they and in that in that instance, they made a big deal about that. But I think a lot of people missed. Uh, that that one little tweak that they did that basically put it on Spider-Man. But, I mean, if he hadn't done that, she was going to splat anyway. And I hate to say it like that, but she was dead. Yeah. I mean, one way or another. So, you know, it, it just gives more angst to the Spider-Man character who is nothing but angst. You know, right. the, the amazing angst man. But, no, seriously, I think it... um it fortified the title, and it made Spidey more more uh, current than ever. Yeah, it made him probably a deeper, less superficial character because he was ruminating on that death for a long time after. he uh, They wrote him to be very distraught, and that actually helped grow him up as a character. There was that scene, I don't know if you remember, that is like with the last page where Mary Jane is trying to make him feel better. And then he's being difficult, and then she's about to leave and decides not to, closes the door, and stays with him. It was all really dramatically well done. And I remember thinking, wow, Mary Jane has some depth to her. Peter's feeling some real pain. 
I thought that was well executed, so to speak. Well, and not only that, but you have to remember something very important about the Spider-Man mythos. He completely started with the death of his uncle, which he could have prevented. So the Gwen Stacy thing was just a further echo of Uncle Ben's death in 1962. I guess we should move on because the next death is kind of a birth in a way because it's the creation of The Punisher. Yes, Punisher cover date in 1974, but his creation was basically all in 73. And it was Jerry Conway's idea to uh, come up with something that was very similar to the Don Pendleton's Executioner series. It was super popular in the early 70s. That's right. It's kind of funny because we have these instances all through comic history. If you remember, the whole reason uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came about was it was actually a parody of Ronan, the Frank Miller series, and their love of Kirby. So sometimes we get huge gifts from something that's really a takeoff or knockoff of something else. And in this case, of course, the Punisher has become one of Marvel's most successful titles and characters in the 45 years since. Oh, yeah, for sure. His costume design was John Romita. And the idea to mimic Don Pendleton's Executioner novels was Jerry Conway's. The name Punisher didn't come from Conway. Evidently, Jerry Conway approached Stan Lee trying to come up with a catchy name. And then Stan Lee said, oh, how about the Punisher? That sounds good. And then, because Stan was good with words, with making zingers. And so you have Jerry Conway saying, well, let's get... Don Pendleton's executioner, John Romita says, well, here's a costume with a skull on the chest. And then there's Stan saying, how about Punisher? It's a convoluted creation, but interesting. That's just kind of how Marvel was, though. People would bounce ideas back and forth. And for our listeners who don't know, Don Pendleton's executioner, his name was Mac Bolin, and he was a Vietnam veteran whose family was killed by the mafia. So Bolin becomes a criminal serial killer. This is essentially the germination of Frank Castle's Punisher. Here's a little trivia for you, Bill. Frank Castle, in the comic book world, is Castle his birth name? Because you phrased it that way. I'm going to guess that that was not his birth name. It was not. His birth name, it's funny because he's Italian, so his birth name was Castiglione. Should have been Castellano, but yeah, Castell- Yeah, I remember that, and I'd forgotten that completely, but yeah. And, and I just want to make one more note on this. Um, the wonderful art of Ross Andrew, who uh-huh. I always noted as having helmet hair on his ladies, if you know what I mean, <laughs> and I, I think you do, based on your chuckle. Ross Andrew delivered a wonderful issue with the uh, birth of the Punisher, that's right. some, to me, that's some of his best art. He really liked getting down and dirty, you know? Yeah, he did. And, you know, the wonderful Esposito inks. I love the guy. There are a lot of people pan, pan him for some reason. And, and then there are a lot of people who think, oh, his best work was on ROM. Well, okay, not really. Interesting. I've always liked the Andrew Esposito team, actually. It might be sentimentality guiding that taste, but I like that team. I, I like their work on Wonder Woman. Metal Man was one of my favorites as a kid. I, I, I thought they were a great team. I loved Robot. Right. I loved the whole idea of it. So there you have it. There you have it. So as far as our death theme, 
1973. Sid Shores. Jack Kirby had an inker, Sid Shores, in the 40s and in the 60s. And he was known for his nice, bold line. Sid Shores inked Jack Kirby in 1941. And when Kirby and Simon left, Sid Shores worked on the Cat America title with Al Avison. One would pencil, the other one would ink, then back and forth. And not a lot of people know this about Sid Shores, but he was actually art director at Timely Comics. And then in the 1960s, he was famous for inking Kirby over the Silver Age revival of Captain America. How do you like those issues, Bill? You know what? I like Sid's inks a lot. I absolutely hate, you know this already about me, but I absolutely hate Vince Coletta's inks on on Kirby. But Sid Shores seemed to give it, you know, Sid seemed to give Jack more of a Milton Kniff kind of feel to me. I don't know why. And I also feel this about the uh, Frank Robbins stuff later. There was a strong Terry and the Pirates kind of feel about uh, what, and I know you love that strip, so. Yeah, I read uh, all of Milton Kniff's run. I love it. Yeah, well, let's face it. A lot of people ink Kirby in the 60s. He penciled so many pages. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're an inker, it was hard to miss inking a page of Kirby's. I mean, he just did so much work. Absolutely loved Ditko's inks on his work. One of his Fantastic Four issues was 13, which was the creation of the Red Ghost and the Super Apes. And the Watcher, right? Yeah, and the Watcher. Yeah, that was a, man, that was a pinnacle issue. And John Byrne really pulled off of that. I mean, that whole scene with Wolverine running through the Watcher's house is the same scene of the Red Ghost running through the Watcher's house in that Fantastic Four 13 uh, issue commie evil guy you know what's not to love that you can't touch hence the ghost and the red better better dead than red alex better red than dead. <laughs> i'll uh, keep that in mind that's good advice well, thank you bill you come back to that all the time it's very strange but that being said you mentioned sid shores you mentioned vince coletta so i would say vince coletta's lines are kind of thinner lines his ink line. I would say that Sid Shores has a bold line. I think that some of the inkers whose work probably shine the best on Jack is when their lines were like a thicker ink line. Mike Royer. Now, Mike Royer, yeah, his were really thick lines. And that does well with the craggled Kirby faces, the imperfect kind of ragged characters. Yep. I thought Mike Royer was great. And again, we're digressing a bit, but I like Joe Sinnott's inks as well for a completely different reason. Oh, yeah. He made things look like smooth, like a 50s Cadillac advertisement. It was just smooth, sleek, beautiful inking. His Reed Richards looked like a Ken doll. It's just a whole other type of inking. But again, both pretty awesome. Sinnott made it made everything his own, which I love about him. And he's still with us, thankfully. As a brief interruption, just a quick thing on Sid Shores. Two of his last comic books were yeah. the first issue of Ghost Rider and the second issue of Ghost Rider. I do want to give those a brief mention because those are his early 70s work. That was kind of him uh, right toward the end. And I think those are issues worth looking at. Well, and and do you know how old he was when he died? Well, he was actually 59 when he died. So Okay. So he was born in 1916. And wow. uh, so, well, that sounds old, but really 59 is pretty young. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these comic people back then, they, they died early. Well, they lived hard. Most they of lived them. hard. That's but it. Those guys drank and smoked 
themselves into oblivion, basically. Some of them definitely did. I don't want to name names, but uh, yeah, some of them definitely did. We don't know anything of that with Sid Shores, but it is kind of sad that they both, pinnacles of the, the Golden Age, both passed away in 73, like you said. Well, Sid Shores died of a heart attack. That is associated with cardiovascular risk. So another thing that happened death-wise, and this is one, I, this, this snuck up on me, Al, uh, Dell Comics dies. That's right. And it was basically one of the very first publishers of comics. They were created to create comic newspaper strip reprints. That's right, in the year 1929. So super early as far as comic book history goes. That being said, they had newspaper comic strips going back, what, to the 1890s. Modern comic books, that's going to be 1929 and early 1930s. So comic book history, Dell Comics is really a starter in the comic book world. And, and did you know that Scribbly started in Dell, not at DC? The Sheldon Mayer comic strip, which is basically oh, uh, his okay. life story. And then Scribbly was minor character in the Justice Society, which Sheldon Mayer also created. So as far as Dell Comics goes, just a little brief talk on them. They were a powerhouse. They had a deal with Western Publishing to make a lot of Disney comics and child-friendly comics. They actually didn't have to obey the code because they had such a pristine reputation that they had their own seal saying that Dell Comics makes good comics. In 1962, they separated from Western Publishing, and they lost a lot of its licenses. And so Disney went with Western Publishing, and Western Publishing then created another comic book imprint called Gold Key. So we know Solar, Man of the Atom, and what's a Magnus Robot Fighter. All that was under the Gold Key imprint. So Dell then became New Dell, and they kind of floundered until 1973 when they seized publication. So 1973 is the death of Dell Comics, just like it being the death of Bill Everett, the death of Sid Shores. It basically shows that the Platinum Age, the Gold Age, the Silver Age, it's all really kind of turning a chapter in comic history at this time. It's a really interesting theme. To essentially herald this, the angel of death, Thanos, uh, Jim Starlin breaks into comics in late 1972 after being discharged from the military. He ended up writing and penciling Iron Man 55, the first appearance of Thanos, who was a lover of death and a bringer of death. And that actually segues into his Captain Marvel issues where Jim Starlin actually creates the cosmic death figure in Captain Marvel 26. It's just kind of uh, symbolically interesting that the year that the death cosmic entity premieres in Marvel Comics is this year, 1973. Interestingly enough, Jim Starlin was such uh, an outstanding new talent that he got the Shazam Award for Outstanding New Talent, and he was actually tied with another legend in comics, Walt Simonson. I don't know if you knew that. I did not, but that makes perfect sense to me because he and Walt followed similar paths as far as their careers go. So that's not a shocker to me. Did you say that's not a spocker to you? A uh, shocker. I got you. Yeah, thank you. So <laughs> thank you, Alex. What I wanted to bring up is Starlin's work, and I don't know if it was because of his time in Nam, but I'd be willing to bet it probably is. If you think about it, Captain Marvel was on death trajectory kind of from the get-go with Starlin, because he would eventually kill off Captain Marvel in, what, 1981? I think 1982. 
which was also the very first Marvel graphic novel, you see this consistent theme of death in most everything uh, Starlin produced at Marvel. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, it actually takes place before that. He, in the later 60s and early 70s, he actually worked on some fanzines, and he worked in uh, Dr. Weird. He actually did a death versus life abstract cosmic entity comic story in fanzines earlier than this so this was a theme he carried with him and actually in one of the comic book historian videos there's one on jim starlin and he brings death to a lot of comic characters for decades i mean the death of robin in the 80s of the jason todd robin and that's just one of many so this is did starlin write that yeah starlin wrote that Wow, that's weird. Yeah, yeah. He brings death. And so for him to really deliver and premiere Thanos and the Death Cosmic Entity in, in 1973, I think symbolically and artistically, it, it just makes sense. Dell Comics, Bill Everett, Sid Shores, there's death. But then again, like with a lot of Starlin stuff, there's also rebirth. So if you read a lot of his comics, like the Infinity Wars and all that, when there's death, there's like rebirth of new stuff. He did a Captain Comet storyline where Captain Comet was killed in the first page, but then rebirthed in a new form with new abilities and new powers. So there's an interesting theme with Starlin's work, and I think that all ties in with 1973 really well. So that brings us to life or rebirth, as we're saying this week. I, I think I go straight into Berkeley Con 1973, which was the first comic convention that basically um, applauded uh, underground comics. And you know a little bit about this. Uh, take it away, Alex. That's right. So the Comics and Comics guys, Bud Plant, John Barrett, Robert Beerbaum, they actually helped coordinate and host the Berkeley Comic Convention. You, we, of course, know Robert Beerbaum from uh, the Facebook groups. Bud Plant is a friend of mine, and him and Scott Maple, as well as Jim Buser and some other guys, including Beerbaum, created Comics and Comics and actually hosted and worked with underground comics publishers. They even published some of their own comics as well. And what's interesting about BerkeleyCon 1973 is that the Comics and Comics guys acquired the Tom Riley Golden Age collection. And there were so many Golden Age comics that those sales contributed to the company's growth so that Comics and Comics was able to become the first comic store chain. And that all germinates in 1973. The Berkeley Comic Convention, a lot of people now don't understand its cultural significance. There are a lot of underground comics people there, but there's also some Marvel people there too. Imagine if you were going back in time and you go to this thing, and you see Steve Englehart, Rick Griffin, Gilbert Shelton, and Art Spiegelman all hanging out. I mean, how much fun would you be having? I would absolutely love that. And, and I love all those guys at the time. Well, hell, it was Berkeley. Where else are you going to have an underground comic convention but Berkeley, California? Oh, yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty much like the right place to do it. Absolutely. Sounds like a match made in heaven. Interesting thing about that, you know who also contributed? There were sticker designs, button designs for the Berkeley Comic Convention. Trina Robbins also contributed to those designs. Did you know that? No, I did not. But it doesn't surprise me at all because she was so ensconced in the era. But then... We move on, and ABC premieres something we both love, and that's dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yes, Super Friends premiered, and 
actually, I think this is my jumping off point to comics. I think it was for a lot of people. Alex, you're too young to remember when it came out, but it made quite a splash. <laughs> well, I wasn't born yet. I was still just an egg in my mom's eye. You weren't even that. Well, yeah, you were that. <laughs> I remember watching the first episode, and the cool thing about it is, thanks to Alex Toth, they decided to have guest appearances by other members of the Justice League, and the episode actually had Plastic Man in it. The third episode, yeah. And Plastic Man, you know, they put him to good use. You know what he did? He used his elastic plastic hand to locate a rat that was biting through this giant computer that was running the earth plastic man also had his own series with ruby spears that was like late 70s early 80s well ruby spears both uh worked on super friends as well because they started at hanna barbera so little known fact but super friends became like a juggernaut it even became the first superhero toy line based on a TV series in 1984, I believe, with the superpowers. And so they had a lot of the Super Friends superfluous characters would show up. You had a, a Plastic Man figure. You had Batman, Superman. But the funny thing is, is that none of these were on model from the cartoon. They were actually the DC versions that were done by um, Garcia Lopez. Mm, nice. Amazing. Yes about the Super Friends, who were the stars of that first Super Friends season? A lot of people don't know, but it's actually just a handful of characters. Superman, Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Well done. You got them all. Wow, good Thank job. You. Marvin's hair, so 70s. I mean, that is just perfect. Well, gee, Superman, I'm glad you think that. Sorry. <laughs> I had to go there. That was uh, really scarily good impersonation. Interesting, though. Yeah, you're right. Super Friends had many iterations. They lasted until 1986, and that was when the show was called the Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians. And they actually had all sorts of characters by then. So many characters and villains all being showcased in each episode. I mean, it was just a gigantic, fun show by then. And then that was it. That paved way for the Bruce Tim universe, um, which started later on with the Batman, the animated series, and, and then uh, the Superman animated series, then the Justice League, Justice League Unlimited. So before the Bruce Tim verse, we had the Super Friends, and that was all created and jump-started in 1973, the year that you started reading comics. So like the way Jim was saying, that the 1966 Batman show affected him, this uh, Super Friends cartoon really affected you, didn't it? Oh, hell yeah. I, I You know, I bought the Mego figures that kind of went with the series, and right. um, it, it also made me realize that Captain Marvel was a DC character, but at the time he wasn't interacting with the other DC characters. We'll get to this later, because Shazam premiered in 73, but that really caught fire quickly, and in 1974, you had the uh, debut of the Shazam live-action series. Right. Oh, yeah. So now, going down the list of creation and rebirth and the beginning of a whole new era of comic books is 
The direct market distribution system. This is interesting because Phil Suling essentially was a real creative and enthusiastic dynamo and an entrepreneur created the direct market distribution system with Marvel, DC, Warren, and Archie through his Seagate East Coast distributors. So when you and I interviewed Neil Adams, so we were talking about the downfalls of the corrupt newsstand distribution system, which was the older system. And this was the system that kind of jump-started off of pulp magazines and things. And the problem with that is they had an honor system. So they would, let's say, sell, let's say, 1,000 comics. And if newsstands could only sell half of them, then they would have to return the remaining half, and then the comic company would eat the cost. And the problem with that is there was an honor system, so they could kind of lie. Then the distributors would then actually pocket some of what could be collector's items and sell them on the side to people. And it became a very dishonest way. The direct market distribution system is different. A a comic shop can buy it directly, non-refundable, from the comic book company, and then they have the inventory to sell. And then what's beneficial for the comic company is if a person misses buying the new issue as it comes out, they can keep it as a back issue, increase the price by 2 or $3, and then sell it two months later for even higher price. And so this actually, although it started small with Phil Suling in 1973, really ended up saving the comics industry by the time the late 70s, early 80s hits. And not only that, but I think we have to uh, give a nod of the hat to Robert Overstreet because the creation of the comic book price guide in 1970 lent itself to people being able to charge these larger prices for comics almost within a few months. Yeah, that's a good point. I I remember things like Howard the Duck number one becoming worth $5 within a few months of its release because they released it with such a low print run these things really affect you when you get two dollars a month for allowance back in 73 oh yeah and so your average comics were between 20 and 25 cents depending on the company at that time honestly i would try to figure out strategically what comics to buy my favorites were always multiple hero comics fantastic four Justice League, Avengers, because you always felt like you were getting the most for your money because you had 12 characters instead of one or two, you know, or four or whatever. It always seemed like a better value for your buck. And so I'm of the mind that Team Comics also saved the industry in a certain back. I, I do remember being a kid and going to the comic book shop and looking at price guides and then looking at what they were selling them for and then buying them thinking, okay, this is going to be worth something later. So the direct market did carry the comic book industry past the collapsing newsstand distribution phase of things because that thing was falling apart pretty horribly by the end of the 70s. The 70s are are so beautiful for those kind of things, and, and I think we're finding that as we go down our list. And also, wasn't that the era of having a lot of pubic hair? Thank you, Alex. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, so, Okay, so I didn't realize that Jim Starlin and Steve Englehart created Master of Kung Fu, and this, of course, was riding on the huge Kung Fu craze, which was sweeping the nation at the time. That's right. In 1973 in Marvel Special Edition 15. Shang-Chi was the son of Fu Manchu. As we talked about it in our uh, 1972 episode, Roy Thomas was actually plotting a lot of characters, and 
He was not afraid to license pulp stories, old novels, and license those stories to kind of get away fully from the superhero thing and try other things. And I think that this was part of his effort to do things like that. And Fu Manchu is in those issues. And Shang-Chi, who is a star of The Master of Kung Fu, was a hapa. You know what a hapa is? Yeah, half and half. Yeah, half and half. And it's funny, Steve Englehart who wrote that first issue, Jim Starlin drew it. Steve Englehart has this reputation for writing very socially straightforward, but also uncomfortable things like the way the Phantom Rider and Mockingbird, you know, and the kind of a, that was kind of a weird date rape storyline. And then in Avengers West Coast, he would have Chris, Crystal, the wife of Quicksilver, cheat on him with a real estate agent. You know, random things. Then in this, it's funny, Fu Manchu went on a diatribe about how he wanted Shang-Chi's mother's blonde jeans in his child to create the perfect progeny. So these are just funny things that kind of happen in life, but he, he's not afraid to put them in his comics. A lot of people like that. A lot of people don't like that. I don't know. I felt like that was definitely Steve Englehart imprint. I like also Jim Starlin fight scenes. The first one I read as a kid was the death of Captain Marvel when when Captain Marvel is kind of taking out some dudes on Titan with Eros. And what's the dad's name? Mentor? Because isn't that also the name of that character from those Wallywood Dynamo uh, Thunder Agents comics? Yeah. That's why I was getting kind of confused. I was getting my mentors crossed. You ever have that happen to you, Bill? I get my mentors crossed all the time, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> There's a fight scene where Captain Marvel was using, like, cosmic karate. Cosmic kung fu. Cosmic kung fu on these, what do they call them? Henchmen. They also call them cronies or douchebags or things. Is that right, Bill? I, the hench is what I like to call them. <laughs> and what's cool is when you look back at uh, 10 years earlier at that 1973 Marvel Special Edition, Shang-Chi utilizes a lot of those same moves. You put the pages next to each other. These are a lot of the same fight moves. So it's pretty cool. So, you know, Jim Starlin took part in the creation of Shang-Chi as well as Thanos all in the same year. It's pretty cool. So again, death with Thanos, but then rebirth, new character with Shang-Chi. Engelhart uh, had something to do with it. Engelbert Humperdinck, you mean? Engelhart Humperdinck. Yeah. The <laughs> comic book the comic book crooner. Engelhart Humperdinck. I'm sure people love that. That comic went to a whole new heights, obviously, when Doug Moinch and Paul Golacy, they took that story to whole new heights. Oh, absolutely. Now, riding the wave of new Bronze Age characters being created in this year. Red Sonia was first made by Roy Thomas and Barry Smith in Conan the Barbarian issue 23. It was actually a transmutation of a Robert E. Howard character that Roy Thomas fit into the Hyborian Marvel Universe age. What did you think of Red Sonia's premiere, Bill? I loved her chain mail. Don't you mean chain female, Bill? I'm just trying to make sure. No, no male is in M-A-I-L, not M-A-L-E. That era of Barry Smith art was fantastic, and he drew women unlike anybody else. Because he was from England, he had more of that European vibe, something akin to Mobius. It stood out in my mind, especially as a prepubescent male who would go on to uh, love Red Sonja, you know, just a few years later. 
Something interesting about that is Roy Thomas actually used Scottish warrior women folklore and fuse it with this Red Sony character. You know, that whole storyline of her as a teenager and her family was killed, she was raped, her village was burned down, and then this goddess appeared before her and blessed her with warrior women ability and that the only way she would ever be with a man is if they defeated her in a fight, defeated her in battle. And that warrior goddess was actually a figure from Scottish folklore. Did you know that? It doesn't surprise me because the Celtic imagery in her storyline was pretty obvious. In fact, the Hyborian Age has a lot of Celtic imagery in it, thanks to Barry Smith, who was smitten by the era. We shouldn't make light of Red Sonja. Frank Thorne did some of the best Red Sonjas. I love Frank Thorne, yeah. Something interesting about those Conan issues, especially by the time it gets to issue 23, if you look at Conan number one and read it through to 23, the Barry Smith issues, you see him transmutate from one of many Kirby clones to his own illustrative Hal Foster type style. And it's just so amazing reading from issue to issue. It's an odyssey, not just of Conan and the Hyborian Age, but also just of Barry Smith's talent as an artist truly coming into its own over those issues it's a great ride reading his run and you know it's funny that you mentioned that because i know dave sim and dave sim and i have talked about this ad nauseum but dave sim was a huge fan of barry windsor smith and uh when he created cerebus the aardvark he created it with barry smith's conan in mind right that's right and Cerebus's first wife is actually parody of Red Sonia. That's right. And Cerebus, he was an earth pig, which is what they used to call aardvarks back in the day. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, because with their snouts, they would pull their meals out of the ground, mm. earth, and they would eat ants. Uh, basically porking that raw earth. Is that right, Bill? Yes. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Alex. So, <laughs> and but it's funny that uh, Dave Sims' career basically parodied in many ways Barry Windsor Smith and took it in a whole nother area, just like we were mentioning earlier with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the Frank Miller spinoff. Right. So, and then of course, Lynn Wine and Gene Colan created Brother Voodoo in Strange Tales 169. That's right, in the year 1973, exactly. And that actually is a mixture of death and rebirth, because Jericho Drum, he was a Haitian-born psychologist in America. He returns to Haiti. His brother Daniel was a local houngan who was killed by a servant that was possessed by Dambala, the serpent god. You know about Dambala, Bill? That Dambala... No. <laughs> well, but he's a serpent god. He's one with the sky. He's the sky father. Did you know this? He sounds like... Who's the guy in Conan? Toth... Uh... Thothamon? Yeah. Kind of reminds no, me yeah. of him. Right. I mean, it's pagan you know, names. So then Jericho becomes a new brother voodoo after he gets trained by Papa Jumbo and becomes the new Hongan brother voodoo to fight Gosh. the evil forces of Dambala, sky father. 
you almost expect like an ebony kind of Will Eisner character to come. Hey, I don't know what you guys are doing, but I'm Brother Voodoo. I'm sorry, it's just bad. But uh, it, it was things were so stereotypical even in the early '70s, and it's right. like it makes me so. Oh, oh, and going back to uh, Shang Chi, let's not let let's not forget the hideous yellow color they made his skin if you look at the coloring they made fu manchu really yellow and then they made shang chi like half yellow kind of like not as yellow right i know what you're saying you know again this is the early 70s so social relevance is actually a guiding point here for a lot of these caucasian american creators you have brother voodoo who's an african-american protagonist you have red sonia a female and empowered character so their mission was creativity and fun, but also social relevance. They wanted a black character. They wanted a female character. So, you know, you got to do it in some way. I, you got to start somewhere. That's all I got to say. Well, and not only that, but think about what was going on at the time. There was black exploitation and Asian exploitation going on. Right. You had Shaft, you had Blackula, you had Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, and you had all of these versions of typically white stories, but being told for the black audience and for people that just loved really good bad movies. Right. I know what you're saying. I like the Brother Voodoo character. I like how he became Dr. Voodoo down the road. I love Gene Colan art. I know you do too. Hell yeah. He's fantastic. Right. The way he can work magic and mist and surrealism, I feel like he was a true artist, abstract artist, that can illustrate and do abstraction all together. So, yeah, I love those issues. I thought as corny as they may be now, and maybe they wouldn't be as accepted if it was just newly created now, I'm glad they got a chance to create it back then because those are still some good comics. Well, and look at what we're, we're faced with now. You have a Luke Cage TV series, which is phenomenally successful, has a a great soundtrack and basically harkens back to 1972 Marvel in a lot of ways. So these things, uh, they have a way of being cyclical. We learn from these creations and then we make them more relevant and more cool, more digestive. And look, I love this whole era of comics. You know, I like all the era of comics. So now we have Son of Satan, or as the Persians say, Shaitan. Did you know that, Bill? I did not know that. I did, th- <laughs> thanks for that Persian perspective. Perspective. The Son of Satan, Damon Hellstrom, premiered in Marvel Spotlight 12 by Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich. Interestingly, it was a story that was proposed by Stan Lee to be about Satan, and Roy Thomas transformed it into the Son of Satan concept. Quick aside is Son of Satan again. It's a mixture of creation of a new character with a bit of a death-related theme. Did you ever read any of those comics? Oh my gosh. Yes, in fact... Here's where we diverge into the history of Bill Field. Bill Field, Spotlight. Okay, when I was a kid, I had a wonderful dad. He was awesome. He basically took direction from me and did what I told him. No, I'm just joking, but he kind of did. He was just a really great guy. When I would get sick, my dad would go and buy me a stack of comics and bring them home to me. And for some reason, he bought me like three comics copies of the same issue of son of satan and my mom 
was so mad at me. She goes, why are you reading these satanic comics? I, but dad got it for me. And, <laughs> and my dad then had to explain it to my mom. And it was so hilarious because my mom, she was awesome too. But it was so funny. She would always find one thing to freak out about. And she wouldn't let it go. And so the fact that my dad had uh, had picked those out for me kind of freaked her out a little. And so I was allowed to read Son of Satan after that because, you know, daddy said it was OK. I it freaked me out too much because hell, when you're when you're a 10 year old, hell is kind of scary as hell. Huh? But I really and and my parents, I don't know about your parents, Alex, but my parents always called comics funny books and that drove me insane because the comics I was reading weren't funny anymore. They weren't right. far Archie. They were right. Marvel DC. Well, that's the thing. Funny books goes back to when comic books were just newspaper comic strip reprints, which were the morning funny. So it's weird the idea that we'd call them f superhero comics funny books or even these Bronze Age kind of crime comics, demon comics, monster comics. They're not funny. No, and we're not talking the Cats and Jammer Kids anymore, which is what they <laughs> were referring to back, back in the day. And Yellow Kid. Odd coincidence on the Son of Shaitan concept. Shaitan. Uh, Bill Joe White. You know who Bill Joe White is? Prolific fanzine guy. Yeah, he created Batmania fanzine as well as others. And there was a 1962 fanzine, and he had his own Son of Satan more than 10 years earlier with a pentagram and a trident and all that. So it's very similar to the Damon Hellstrom character. And Roy Thomas mentioned that it was awkward. He talked to Bill Joe about it because they were friends, but that it was actually a coincidence. And recently on the comic book historians group, I did post the side by side, the two characters. True. There's a pentagram and there is a trident, but really with a son of Satan, type of character there's only so many visual variations you can really do so i can't necessarily think that one inspired the other or not it could be an interesting case of parallel thinking just at different times okay but there's one thing you're leaving out roy thomas was doing alter ego at the time he was very much into the fan scene that's true also. I, and that's true and also. so i'm i'm going to say I, it sounds like a little bit of theft to me but I do disagree. I don't think it was meant to be lifted. Although another odd coincidence, though, is Liberty Legion that Roy Thomas oh, yeah. helped put together in the 70s, which uh, Frank Robbins did some good art in. That's supposed to be basically the timely characters in World War II, including Captain America and them, but it was all written in the 70s. The Liberty Legion, that team name, that also came from a 1960s fanzine about a decade earlier. That name, Liberty Legion, came from an older fanzine. So that's interesting, right? That Roy Thomas would create Son of Satan, which also mm. was... And then Liberty Legion, which also is another name from another fanzine. So that is an interesting coincidence, I'm just saying. Again, either way, it's all fun to read. I like reading all of it. I don't know, Alex. I'd like to think that maybe someone we both know had... I'm thinking maybe Satan? <laughs> Shaitan? <laughs> Boy, I'm loving this episode, guys. 
Okay, so that brings us to somebody that we both admire and love, and that's the late, great Steve Gerber, who also created Thundar the Barbarian, might I add. But Steve Gerber wrote his neurotic plots into Daredevil, Iron Man, Submariner, Man-Thing, and giant-sized Man-Thing, I might add, Vampire Tales, and so many more after leaving advertising in 1972. That's right. And my favorite line from Man-Thing that Steve Gerber wrote and created this year of our Lord 1973 was the classic line, whatever knows fear burns at the man things touch. And it's not a metaphor for herpes, I'm just saying. But uh, you can never know. It could have been the whole birth of a super STD era. <laughs> we don't know. The more you fear it, the more your man thing burns. You get it? Ooh. Yes, I get. Yes, I get it. Um, Thank now, interestingly enough, in the year of our Lord, nineteen seventy-three, Howard the Duck was created in Fear Number Nineteen Rebirth. Howard the Duck is created, and he, that was a huge sensation when he premiered. Do you remember that, Bill? Oh, do I ever? And in, in fact, uh, and and here's the funny thing, is that I. I, for some reason, didn't get the fact that they were basically ripping off Disney and going with Donald Duck in the Marvel Universe. I totally thought Howard was his own character. and He's not. He's Donald Duck. But, I mean, in fact, does Donald wear pants? No. Does Howard wear pants? No. I think there's something there. I'm just saying. But, yes, and, and the Howard the Duck craze became a phenomenon and he also wound up being the first major motion picture developed uh, about a Marvel character by George Lucas in the year of your Lord, 1986. <laughs> the think. year of my Lord, huh? Yes, you <laughs> I'm joking. We went there, folks. You've read way too many Frank Miller 300 yes. comics. Yes, I think I have, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so you, you started talking earlier about Don McGregor, and uh, that brings us to his Panther's Rage saga, which created the villain that we all know from the Black Panther movie. Name him. Killmonger. Eric Killmonger, starting in Jungle Action 6. And the 1973 issues were uh, penciled by Rich Buckler. And Billy Graham stuff came in 1974. I do love those issues. Some people say Don McGregor's writing, there's like too many words per panel. But I love his writing. It's fun. Oh, I love McGregor. That Panther's Raid saga was just epic story. And Killmonger was almost as scary as when Juggernaut first appeared in the old X-Men comics, where it was just this unstoppable force. Not even Black Panther could go up against him. He just tossed him off a cliff. And... The menace of Killmonger and how much psychological trauma Black Panther went through uh, along his countryside, isolated, fighting alligators, using some really nice Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan type imagery within this jungle action comic, but also just this African storyline of him getting his country back. Beautiful stuff. McGregor, Gerber, Starlin, Engelhart. You know, all these guys are just popping out 
some awesome stuff in 1973. Again, this is part of that rebirth I'm talking about where just new blood is entering the fray. You know, Sid Shores, Bill Everett dies, Dell Comics dies, but then you got Gerber, McGregor, you got Starlin just pounding out really new, incredible things. Really just an interesting, interesting time. Well, and you know what's funny is I always think of the Namor saga when I think of Black Panther because they were both the heads of their countries. Yeah. And they both faced turmoil within their own ranks. Right. And they had to overcome it. And you also have that with the Inhumans, with Maximus right, sure. and Black Bolt. So this right. is a constant Marvel theme, I believe. If you actually compare the plot lines for Thor Ragnarok and the Black Panther movie, they're actually kind of the same elemental story, executed far differently, and each one means something different to different people. But yeah, Marvel really does well with this. Although Aquaman in DC, that's kind of a similar type of thing, right? Wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, I would. And I do think they kind of stole that from Namor. Interesting. Well, I do know that Namor did come first in the chronological sense. Thank you for that. See, I have in my head of pitchforks, but... Uh... But uh, he was uh, he premiered in 1939. Aquaman premiered in the early 40s. So Namor is the first. Uh, again, yet another reason why Bill Everett is and always will be the man. The submariner, submariner thing haunts me to this day. That and Son of Satan and everything else I've mentioned. Did you just say Son of Satan or Satan? Son of Satan. Satan. Yeah, you just did it again. Satan. I did it on purpose. You, you're lisping it. Interesting. I never knew that about you, Bill. Well, I'm not a lisper. Let's <laughs> I'm the dog lisper. Well, do you remember that song, Careless Lisper? Lisper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So back to our celebration of life and rebirth in this part of 1973. DC breathes new life and gives Shazam. Utilizing C.C. Beck, they bring back Captain Marvel. They can't use the name because Marvel has sequestered and taken the name for their own characters by this point. So they now title the comic Shazam instead. There was some awkward writing by Denny O'Neill. Under editor Julius Schwartz, they were able to get C.C. Beck. The great, the first issue actually sold a lot at a high sell-through rate in that old newsstand distribution system. But the issues puttered out pretty fast. People just didn't stick with it. Why do you think that is, Bill? I think it was because it was such a throwback. They didn't meet it out to, to uh, meet the times. It was still being drawn in a 1953 way by C.C. Beck, who I love, and I absolutely love his work on it. But Oskner took over after he left, after I believe issue five, he got fed up, and or it might be eight. I'll have to go back and look. But early on, they lost C.C. Beck because he just thought they were taking the character in the wrong direction. But his artwork was fantastic. I mean, it was definitely a cartoon style. And let's go this way. In 1973, in the era of the anti-hero and the return of pulp-style heroes, dark and interesting characters, does a cartoon-style character like Shazam under C.C. Beck, does that work in 1973? It sounds like you're feeling like it doesn't fit with the times. 
I, I have to be clear about this because the wonderful thing was was that in 74, Filmation takes Shazam and creates a live-action TV series, which actually helped the comic like survive uh, losing C.C. Beck. He and Uncle Dudley went on the road, and they basically made Mentor the Uncle, or Mentor was the Uncle Dudley character, but not Goofy. He was played by Les Tremaine in the TV series, who was a powerhouse in the 30s and 40s. It became something completely different, and then that spawned ISIS and mm-hmm. uh, shortly thereafter. And that's all become part of the Fawcett DC mythos now, which is amazing. But you see this more and more. DC is using a lot of the canon that was created in the TV series of their characters as the canon for the comic book series. You see it with Super Friends. You see it with Captain Marvel, and then you see it with Isis. So mm. I, I find those things very, very interesting indeed. Right. Well, I mean, we've made military successes against Isis recently. Interesting that you say that. Yeah, she's really upset about that, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that being said, Bill, what's our final creation and rebirth bullet point for 1973? Well, I'll have to go back to my Ted Knight voice on this one, my friend, and say, What evil lurks in the hearts of men, the shadow knows. Yes, The Shadow Number 1 by Denny O'Neill and Mike Kaluta. It premiered and had very high sales initially, but of course that petered. Wait, we have a lot of petering sales here. That's okay. With Rebirth comes Peter, so... <laughs> We're having too much fun here, dude. What I do like about the shadow is of course that's a nineteen thirties pulp and it was breathed new life with a rebirth, just like Shazam was given new life. Denny O'Neill did better with the writing for the shadow. I think he does better with dark, mysterious things at this time of his life compared to the Shazam stuff he did. Michael Kaluta was essentially this credible artist and still is. But when he got the shadow job, you know, originally that was going to go to Jim Steranko. He actually, Jim Steranko tried to get it, but then he was too busy with other projects. He was a renaissance man and just publishing his own magazines and other things and painting uh, book covers and stuff. So Mike Kaluta got it, and that first issue had a very high sell-through. But Kaluta had, he was a perfectionist, and he had a hard time with the deadline. So Wrightson actually had to illustrate issue three. Then Wrightson, Chaikin, and Hickman drew issue four. Frank Robbins at issue five, which is kind of jarring and didn't quite fit with the other issues. And then Kaluta finished with issue six, and uh, the series was canceled after a couple years. But a lot of people like to read those first six issues, especially the Kaluta rights and stuff. I think that people kind of look at the Frank Robbins issue as a necessary bit of medicine to that they have to read just to complete the story. But although I like Frank Robbins and his Milton Kniff style, I think if you're expecting a Kaluta Wrightson type of art and cinematography in a shadow comic, I think one could find the Frank Robbins art somewhat jarring. Stephen Hickman had a style that was more similar to Kaluta and Wrightson, so he was able to play that up. And then when you had Frank come in, it was like being hit in the face with a wet rag. Right. As far as I'm concerned. But at least Kaluta finished with issue six. I mean, that does give it that grand finale. So that series is worth reading. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. And the series was canceled after a couple years. So, again, like a lot of things, all good things have to come to an end. And you can't keep the same level of talent on one title all the time, at least not most of the time. And so then the interest just kind of petered out. But still, it still marks the Shadow and Shazam as interesting parts of the rebirth as far as characters coming back from a bygone time. And they both started with SHA, I might add. That's a good point. Shadow and Shazam. And then your friend, Shaitan. Shaitan! <laughs> Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Alex, of course, as nefarious as he is, has made sure that I have to say we're riding the wave of Shaitan into our segment that we call the 100s or rant and raves or whatever you want to call it this week, Alex. I'll give you that option. What what are you ranting, raving, or just dishing about this week? Well, I just watched the whole series to the Tales from the Crypt TV show that was uh, licensed by HBO from 1989 to 1996, seven years. It was an interesting ride. It's, it's fun for me to see first the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> John Kaser does the voice and he really became a sensation as a crypt keeper it's also interesting is the plot i love the plots each plot takes off from one of the seven eight page short stories from the classic ec comics but they really modernize it for the quote-unquote 90s it was such a fun series i enjoyed looking at a lot of the actors from back then that i used to see on tv and movies all the time like a lot of actors that i just missed leah thompson was in an episode where her face was starting to melt. Jeffrey Tambor, Demi Moore. I mean, these are just such fun things to watch. So looking at it from that perspective was cool, as well as the 1950s plots. John Kaser's Crypt Keeper. What's really interesting is it was such a hit sensation that they actually made a couple of movies. I don't know if you know that, but there are a few Tales from the Crypt movies. Yeah. Bordello of Blood, though, was when it seemed to jump the shark and things kind of fell apart. But it actually did really well. And I don't know if you know this, there was also Tales from the Crypt Keeper cartoon. Did you know that? Oh, hell yeah, I did. Uh, on yeah. ABC. And it yeah. was, I have to say this, sadly, it was horrible. <laughs> it was freaking horrible horrible and and not in a good way it was uh i want to say nelvana did the animation and nelvana had contributed segments of heavy metal they'd done rock and roll they'd done some wonderful stuff but they dropped the ball on that one boy you think so huh yeah you know well, it's funny it's hard for me to be critical of it because I have a sentimentalness toward it, and I never saw it before. So I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I'll say this. I liked how they had John Kaser as the Crypt Keeper. Yep. It was pretty cool that they had the Old Witch and the Vault Keeper also make guest appearances in the second season. Right. Um, I thought that was interesting. I also did enjoy how I could actually watch those with my son. And it's just really funny because in the TV show... To teach someone a lesson, they would get killed or murdered or go to jail or have their arm cut off or something horrible. In this, it became more of like a, a kid learns his lesson and goes to school a better person. <laughs> so right. the morality tale is kind of funny. It's like a filmation cartoon at the, at the end. 
what lesson did we learn this yeah, week, kids? Right, well, like a G.I. Joe kind of lesson, yeah. So I, may, I learned not to make fun of other kids, right? <laughs> then also, but going back to the TV show, at, in the very beginning, they would have a comic book cover that would give you a little visual preview of what the story was about. Do you know who drew those comic covers? Uh, no, I do not. Remember how the Crypt Keeper would say, and in this story we have a semen of love, you know, some weird um, <laughs> title of some kind. But then they would show a comic book cover, and you'd see the cover, and then the story starts. Mike Vosberg did every single one. Oh, Mike Vosberg. He had that contract to do that. Isn't that amazing? And actually, if you follow him on Instagram, which I do, he'll every now and then show a penciled uh, page that he did from that show. That's amazing because uh, he he was one of these guys that Dave Stevens of Rocketeer fame also a lot of these guys were getting steady employment from the animation companies at the same time that they were pursuing their love of comics and right. the art form so animation really really kind of helped supplement these guys' uh, careers in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it looks like Mike Vosrick definitely had another source of income for his illustrative skills. As Neil Adams showed us in our interview with him, that every artist should seek out those opportunities. Then, I don't know if you know this, but on Tales from the Crypt, the last season, okay, do you know anything about that final season? Of the live action? No, I don't. Well, let me tell you. So the first six, you know, they were all with L.A. actors, right? Well, in right. season seven, I don't know if they did that to reduce costs or whatever, but it was all based out of London. They were all British. The whole thing became British in that final season. Oh, wow. did not know that. It's very weird, and I could see why it stopped kind of really doing well at that point because you didn't get the same LA actors again. You had British people. It was like BBC. It looked like BBC. There were a few British actors that I still enjoyed seeing. Bob Hoskins, he starred in and directed the first episode of season seven. So that was pretty cool. You know who else I saw? Daniel Craig. Before he became James Bond, he was in an episode and that was kind of cool. Ewan McGregor, he actually was in an episode. Yeah, and this is all before Craig and McGregor were famous in the United States. So it's kind of cool to see the British actor version of their careers before they became famous in Los Angeles. So so they were in these episodes. Don't tell me uh, Ewan McGregor's uh, episode was called Brain Spotting. <laughs> just joking, just joking. That's Brain funny. Spotting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, it could have because he plays a, a zombie. They go through some zombie versus vampire hijinks. That's an interesting episode. The final episode, after it was like 12 episodes of British BBC Tales from the Crypt, what do they do for the final episode of season seven? They go back to the United States, I'm betting. You would want to watch this one. It's an animated episode, and it's so... Ren and Stimpy, it's so Mighty Mouse 90s, it's called The Third Pig. It's like The Three Pigs and The Wolf. I think I've heard of this, but I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, July 19, 1996, it came out. It's actually a really surreal, just dark animated tale, and that's how they ended it. It's a, It was the oddest 
final season. Again, it's great watching Christopher Reeve in an episode. Richard Donner directed a great Western. They didn't just do horror stories. They also did um, Kirk Douglas was in one. That was from Two-Fisted Tales. That was a war epic. The one that Richard Donner did was a Western that came from one of the non-horror EC comics. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, they didn't just do horror stories. They did some crime stories, like crime suspense stories, shock suspense stories. In each episode, it tells you which comic series they get that story from. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so you can kind of follow it. Some will say Vault of Horror, but some will say Two-Fisted Tales. Some will say Frontline Combat. Frontline Combat, yeah. It's pretty cool that they just did an homage of EC Comics. I recommend watching it. Well, fantastic. And then I have to uh, basically segue into mine, which is, well, I want to start with the fact that Iron Fist Season 2 was a vast improvement over Season 1. I loved it. It was very well done. It was a lot more of what I expected from the first season but didn't get. But then the real story for me right now is is that how great is the trailer for Captain Marvel? Oh, my gosh, dude. It's off the charts. And it starts with her falling into a Blockbuster video store, uh, basically to earmark the fact that she's in the 90s. Right. And then you quickly see scrolls appearing on the shores. You see her punching out an old lady who I'm going to uh, go out on a limb and say she's a scrawl. Right. Uh, or, or, and you and I have shared some of the images from it, you have these Kree warriors that look straight out of the comics. Yeah, you that's have pretty cool. You have a lot of the design, a lot, and the scrolls look fantastic, too. I, I'm just really looking forward to this, and I'm looking forward to the fact that it's not, It's not. they're saying it's not an origin story, but I'm sure there have to be origin elements in it. Uh, but Brie Larson looks, she looks a little too stoic for me. I... I I'd like her to show a little bit more emotion. More face. But, you want more face. Right. Uh, but but I think she's going to... She reminds me of Marsha from the Brady Bunch, which is which is very strange. I don't know why, but... Well, she looks like her. That's why. Yeah, but, I guess you're right. Maureen McCormick. Yeah. Yeah, who I love. There is a similarity. You're right. Uh, I, I know what you mean. I feel like it's going to be... A similar plot structure as uh, Ryan Reynolds' Green Lantern, but I think done in a lot cooler sort of way. Aren't they both air fighter pilots? Both characters. Yes. I think Abin Sor and yeah. uh, Marvel are going to have like a similar type of role. I think that the Green Lantern Corps and then whatever the Kree Centurions uh, are up to, I think that they're going to have a similar type of kind of plot structure, but. Most likely the execution, like what you said, the visuals of the Kree and the Skrulls, the story oh overall is probably yeah. going to be a lot more interesting. So we'll see. I mean, Brie Larson's face looked the same through the whole trailer, but that doesn't mean it'll be like that through the whole movie. No. But we'll see. I mean, we don't know yet. I know that Kevin Fahey, who produces these, he really makes sure that there's his stamp of quality on these things before they're released. So we'll see. I mean, I'm sure we're in for a pretty solid ride. You need a Jan Brady character to come running in and going, Captain Marvel, Marvel, Marvel! Yeah, Marvel, Marvel, Marvel! <laughs> I hold out a lot of high hope. I think it's... and Don't you think it's a little weird at how they're de-aging characters? 
So you have Phil Coulson and Samuel L. Jackson basically looking like they're 20 years younger. Right. And like they did it, that with Michael Douglas in Ant-Man when they were showing like what, 1989 or whatever that was or 1986. Well, and Kurt Russell and Tony Stark, uh, Robert Jr. Yeah, they've done it like crazy. And, yeah, and that's funny. Successfully, too, I might add. Yeah, Marvel's doing that a lot, aren't they? They're, they're doing yeah. those things. They're trying to give things a, t- a, a, a time depth. Right. That brings us to the end. Alex, this has been a fun ride with you. I, I've missed Jimbo quite a bit. Jimmy, I know, exactly. See you next time. And we miss you, buddy. But this has been fun. Yeah, this has been a good ride through 1973. I think what we try to do is illustrate the death and the rebirth theme of that year. And it was fun going through those little bullet points there, Bill. I guess I have to end it like this. And now we come to the end of another episode of the Comic Book Historian Podcast, where we've experienced the might of Shatan and Marvin saying something stupid. Hey, Superman, why do you wear your underwear on the outside of your costume? (laughs) Until next time, folks, I'm Bill Field with my cohort in crime, Alex Grand, and we're saying aloha until next time. (laughs) 